had a brother at Quezon fighting on for Vietcong. They're still there, he's all gone. He had a woman he loved in Saigon. I got a picture of him in the room. I think that what led me to write about it was it seemed like whether you were there or whether you were at home in the United States, it was a defining moment in American culture in some fashion. You know, you felt things really changed. There was before and there was after, and the world and the United States felt like a different place. I think that's what led me to write about it. It just felt central, central in some fashion. Welcome to Edisography, another very special episode. Uh, I'll be very excited to get this out, this audio commentary uh, with legendary engineer Toby Scott. So there's a bit of a preamble as Scott discusses the making of the album just to set the scene, and then there'll be a 3 2 1 countdown for side one should you wish to sink along, or you can enjoy as a standalone interview. Either way, settle down for Toby's track by track discussion of Bruce Springsteen's 80s classic, Born in the USA. This is the start of the interview. I was just listening to Cynthia before you joined. Any particular remembrances about that track? Because I love that song. One of the outtakes. It didn't make the album. Uh, no, it was just another song that we recorded. You know, I don't even remember whether it was, I guess, it, yeah, it was did, done with the whole band. Um, but nothing in particular stands out about it. I mean, it was a good song, a funny song, sort of. I guess when you've got about 70-plus songs to go through, I guess, each on individually, mm-hmm. some of them just don't have yeah that impact. So um, to start with, with uh, Born in the USA, Nebraska was somewhere in between, wasn't it? So the session started in January. Well, in, uh, in, in 82, Bruce started working on a bunch of demos and proceeded to record, I don't know, 15, 17 songs. They completed that during the course of, I believe, January, February. I ran into them uh, sort of somewhat accidentally in, I believe, March or April of that year. Bruce was getting kind of itchy, 
And so he asked if we could transplant ourselves back to New York City. And I said, well, yeah, I can probably mix back there. I had, so we moved back to New York City. And at that time, uh, I believe that was probably around late March, or April sometime of 1982. And we, we started recording. And the first song that we recorded was Born in the USA. I forget whether we even heard the demo, but uh, Bruce had done a, a two-track demo on this cassette. and then that went on then it turned out that we, we went rather quickly to arrive at something that was ready to be mixed and I did a few mixes and then Bruce was like oh, no, 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 no I want to do something else and he explained that he had made these demos and that some of them he intended on being the full band one of the songs was Born in the USA which is the only one that we had done, although we had recorded, I don't know, probably 15 songs or so by that time. And he said, and others are just sort of a solo thing, maybe me with one or two of the band instruments. And so he said, well, I want to, you know, sort of change and address some of these. So that's when we started on Nebraska. We finished it all up and we were done. And the 31st of July, Chuck and I flew back to Los Angeles to start another record, which we had committed to, that started on the 1st or 2nd of August. I recollect we didn't have much time in between. We sort of finished one project, got on a plane, flew to Los Angeles, and then the next day started another project. And then it wasn't until uh, February of 83 that Bruce said, well, I want to get back in there and do something. And he had been hanging around in Los Angeles uh, a lot of this time. I think he came out to LA in, I don't know, maybe October or November of 82 and hung around. And then I guess it was yeah February of 83. We went back and um, we went into the hit factory, a room that they had upstairs. And we recorded, I don't know, three or four, maybe half a dozen songs up there. Uh, My Hometown was one of them. Uh, maybe County Fair. Time while he had been in Los Angeles, uh, let's see, yeah, that October sometime, he uh, came into me because he'd come into the studio. Chuck and I were busy working, but Bruce would come in and see us. And he came up to me one time and he goes, Hey, Tove, I, you know, I, I want to I wanna do some more demos. And uh, I said, Okay. And he goes, I don't suppose I can use that little cassette deck, can I? And I said, No, no, we're mm -hmm. going to try and st stay away from the uh, the repeat of the Nebraska thing. 
And he's okay, well, set me up with a, some sort of a studio that Mike can work. Mike Batlin was his guitar tech at the time. And so I made a studio which consisted of a Trident Trimix console and an MCI eight track tape machine and got this all put together. And we put it in a little garage apartment at a house that Bruce had in Los Angeles. And I would go up, I don't know when I did it, it must have been in between sessions or before or after the sessions I was working on. And I would teach Mike how to record. Then he and Bruce would go at it. <clears throat> they recorded, I don't know, half a dozen songs during that time. You know, some of which were those that we redid at the Hit Factory. Because uh, I remember uh, Mike talking to me and he had recorded crickets right outside the apartment because the apartment was over the top of a garage but there was a very steep hillside next to it and uh, Bruce wanted this atmosphere of outdoors to sound like it and so uh, Mike evidently went out on a little stair landing and turned on the microphone recorded crickets uh, but anyway uh, went through that then we did the uh, the recording at the hit factory in February and then we closed up. I and Chuck went back to Los Angeles. Then I think it was, must have been about April of 83. It wasn't a long period of time. Bruce got a hold of us, or we finally finished whatever we were working on. We went back to New York and resumed cutting tracks for Born in the USA. And that was, like I say, April, maybe May at the latest, because I remember it was about a year that we were there working fairly regularly. That went from, let's say, April 83 through to April of 84. And uh, early on in 84, I think it was, I don't know, maybe uh, March or sometime, April, uh, we got to a point of, we'd recorded, well, probably 65, in the neighbor, the mid-60s numbers of songs. And then uh, Bruce said, well, let's start mixing. And so I, I mixed a couple of songs, and they weren't quite turning out like we wanted. I mean, I didn't feel comfortable with them. I wanted the mixes to be better, but I had been doing some very good rough mixes, you know, every day at the end of the session. And so uh, I remember talking to John Landau and saying, geez, maybe I want to get somebody else to mix this thing. And what was well, can I just ask what was what was missing in those mixes then when you heard them? Well, I can't say. It, it's difficult. They obviously had a little bit of whatever I was doing on the rough mixes, but uh, it just didn't probably have the the clarity or the jump out that we wanted. And so John said, "All right, well, we'll we'll try it." And so he said, "Well, get a couple of guys to to mix this thing." So I went to Record Plant. There was a guy, I think his name was Bill Whitman, who had somewhat of a reputation mixing. And uh, it was just me. Bruce didn't go. John didn't go. Chuck didn't go. It was just me. I went to the studio and gave him the tape and told him what to do and like that. And uh, then I sat around for two, three, four hours, whatever it took him to mix it. And then I took the tapes and everything and left. The next day or a couple days later, I went and uh, I think it was to the power station and Bob mixed. And then 
we all gathered somewhere, it was either the power station or the hip factory, and listened to the mixes and decided that Bob Clear Mountains sounded enough like the roughs that you that they had that spontaneity to them. I guess that's what what I was doing in my in my roughs is that you know there's a when you just do stuff instinctually, it just comes out a certain way whether you call it spontaneity or instinct or whatever. and But they wanted it to be a little bit more refined. Well, Clearmount was able to capture that. So we went, okay, Bob's it. <laughs> and so we uh, uh, started mixing. And, geez, I forget where we mixed. Forget which studio, whether it was Power Station or the Hip Factory. But we started mixing. And at that point in time, I was sort of – wondering what my position was. And so I remember, I think we did one or two songs where Bob Clearmount was in the studio mixing and John, Bruce, Chuck, Steve, and myself were out in the lounge waiting to be, you know, summoned into the control room to hear Bob's first mix. And we did that maybe for a couple of days. And then I sort of said, well, guys, uh, you know, Bob's here mixing, and so I guess I'll see you later, and was thinking to go home. So would you have done a mix that then effectively Bob Clearmountain would have remixed, or would he have done the initial? Yes. Yes, because yes. I had only mixed a couple of the songs, maybe two or three, and we decided that it wasn't coming out like we wanted. And so then Bob did, I guess you what you would call a remix of those. Yeah. And then he went on, and then we just, hey, everything he's doing is good. Let's keep on having him continue mixing. And uh, as I said, I, I sort of felt, well, gee, you know, my work here is done. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I'm, I'm headed home, which I had moved to New York at that point in time. Uh, I forget. I think it was sometime in 83. I, I, I'd been living all this time in hotels and hotel apartments. And uh, I, I finally made a sort of a deal with uh, Landau Management that uh, they would assist me in getting into an apartment in New York. And then they'd be done with paying for my hotel rooms. Anyway, uh, I lived in New York and I said, well, okay, I'm, I'm out of here. I'll see you around. And they went, no, 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 no. You're, you're, you're not leaving. And <clears throat> so that's when I sort of changed into, I guess, consulting engineer or something like that in that uh, they wanted me to stick around because Bob would get a mix going and then we'd go in and listen to it, and Bruce would hear it, and he'd go, well, that sounds pretty good, but, you know, there was a little effect that uh, on the synthesizer, this guitar, or this, that, or the other thing that, Toby, you did in the rough. What did you do? And I, you know, I generally knew what I did, and so uh, he'd say, well, tell Bob. And so I'd sit there, and I'd talk with Bob, and I'd say, oh, well, I did this, you know, I did a pre-delay or whatever, you know, some little engineering trick or way you do things. And so I stuck around through the rest of it. Then in uh, May of 84, we had mixed most everything and they were trying to figure out some sort of a sequence, you know, how to wrap the record up. And Bruce, Bruce doesn't do concept albums to the extent that some people might think of a concept album, but uh, he didn't feel that it was quite there. And uh, so that's when uh, in the taxi ride home, which 
uh, let's see, one of the times, uh, John told him, well, you got to do something that's in the present and here. And that night he wrote uh, Danced in the Dark. Yes. And then John called me into the office the next day and said, hey, Bruce wrote another song. We got to record it tomorrow or today or whenever it was. So I got a hold of the Hit Factory and we uh, went over there and with uh, John or somebody got the whole band together. And we went in and recorded Dancing in the Dark. And then, uh, and this is at the same time that Bob was over at the power station mixing. And we, we finished recording and then we all moseyed over to uh, the power station <laughs> and listened to the latest mix and then brought the tape of the new song. And okay, Bob, this is the song for tomorrow. And he mixed that, and that was the last of the uh, songs for Born in the USA. And then it was just a matter of mastering it and uh, then getting it pressed. And although it didn't have too much to do with the recording, I was put into service to go to Carrollton, Georgia, as supervisor of, one, keeping it out of the public, and two, uh, making sure that... Uh, it was pressed and everything was up to the highest fidelity standards. And so I went to Carrollton, Georgia. I forget. I, I think I might have been carrying the lacquer masters with me. Uh, I went, the, the head of the factory there, and uh, I spent a week there just overseeing, making sure security was there. They screened every employee leaving virtually right close to a pat down to make sure anybody was wasn't walking out with a cassette copy or some copy of the album. They wanted it kept, you know, under wraps. And so uh, we did that. And I think Chuck came down the last two days that I was there or one day <clears throat> and he saw the process. And then we were done and went back to New York with uh, approved masters and, the record came out, and that was the end of that one. Excellent. Thank you. That was a brilliant setup, actually, for the album. But before yeah. you start on the album, can I just get you to paint a picture of the dynamic in the studio? Because obviously there was you, there's Bruce, there's John Landau, Chuck Plotkin, and Stevie Van Zandt, at least initially. So yeah. what was the dynamic? How did it all work out in terms of each person's role? Well, I mean, it was fairly simple. Uh, Bruce is in charge of everything. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he he sets the, the plan. Uh, when he would arrive at the studio, everybody was generally there. Uh, you know, we'd say, oh, we'll start at 7 o'clock. That means at 7 o'clock, if he walks through the door, he wants to be able to record. And uh, so we would be set up and ready to record. But Bruce is not a, he's not a taskmaster by any means. But, you know, he'd roll in at you know, after 7, 7.15, maybe 7.30 or something, uh, the band would have been ready, and I would have gotten sounds on all of their instruments by then, and, uh, and we'd start. And Bruce would come in, have a chat with John Landau and Chuck, and and I don't know whether he would, what exactly the, the chat, chat would be about. Maybe Bruce would just say, yeah, I got some songs, and, you know. And he'd go into his room, his ISO booth, and uh, teach the band the songs, or he'd go out in the uh, studio with them and teach them the songs. So it goes like this. And then they, okay, and then they'd write down, they'd make their charts, and 
uh, then he'd say, all right, you guys, you're ready? And I'd always say, yes, I'm ready. And uh, Landau and Plotkin, they're basically just, yeah, it seems fine. You know, they, they weren't changing a lot of what Bruce wanted. Bruce essentially produces himself, and uh, Landau and Plotkin kind of play the role that I, I kind of like as a producer, which is prevent the artist from doing something wrong and alert them to any potential improvements that might be made in the recording or the song or whatever. And so they weren't saying a lot, just generally, yep, sounds good, Bruce, take it away. And then, you know, they go through two or three takes and come in and listen to it. Uh, generally, it was Bruce listening to decide whether he felt it was good enough, the recording and the performance. Then if he didn't, he would just keep going. Never a lot of takes. Uh, Bruce likes the feeling of spontaneity. And so uh, we, we weren't getting any, there was, there was nothing in the, Take 15, take 20, anything like that. This uh, Born in the USA, uh, the master was take nine. And uh, the takes occurring prior to nine, I, I do a presentation on Born in the USA about the recording of Born in the USA. And I have a copy of takes two, three, and four. And they sound, sound-wise, somewhat similar to Born in the USA. But performance-wise, different, uh, just a lot different. And so the song evolves during the course of these takes, at least Born in the USA did. And that was the first song that we recorded for that album. Sorry, so should we get to the album then? Should we start listening? Audio commentary. Born in the USA. Bruce Springsteen. Night one. Three, two, one, play. So you said the master was um, take eight or nine. Take nine. Take nine. Okay, because because the the perceived view of Born in the USA is that it's a first or second take. And you're saying yeah. the actual finished master is not that. No, it's uh, just take nine. And there was a take ten, which, as I recollect, we put the tail end of take ten onto take nine, and then even edited that down because the band had continued playing for quite some time. Um, yeah, that's my question because there's an supposed to be an eight minute version of it that was it was cut down to the four and a half minute finished. Master. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was quite long. So when you listen to Born in the USA, can you visualize how the studio had looked and the band looked? Can you see it in in your head? Oh yeah, yeah. I give a talk on the recording of Born in the USA, and at this talk, the talk is about forty minutes, forty five minutes, something like that, and I start with okay, this is the way this evolved, and we did this and did that, and then it moved toward this, and then I uh, put a picture of the power station so everybody can see what the power station looks like, the building, the, the studio, uh, and then I have a, uh, a layout of where all the instruments were in the studio and the list of all the microphones that I used. Then I go through, and then I have a copy of the uh, master take, play it back and everybody listens to it. And, you know, I don't play the whole thing and you know, I'll play the first you know minute or two. So you hear the thing and then I'll uh, stop and just talk about various aspects. All seven players played live on Born in the USA. And then there were a few overdubs of, uh, I think, guitars and 
either maracas or a tambourine and uh, maybe a keyboard and uh, point out that I go, listen closely and you can hear the drums in the background because it is a live vocal. And although he was in a booth, so that there isn't any big leakage of the drums, you can hear them in the background. Things like that, and the same with other instruments, that uh, it's pretty much a live take, except for a few overdubs. In, in answer to your question, yes, I know exactly what that whole situation is like. For the finished version, so there's the bit of the drums that seems to like break down and then start up again. So that was, that was completely spontaneous. Oh, yeah. On that take. And that was oh, just yeah. on that one take, was it? Um, no. I think that it probably happened at an earlier take, you know, maybe take eight or something like that, or seven or eight, when they had sort of discovered, because the intro to the song changed. I know between takes two, three, and four, it changed considerably how the song started. So then I think it it evolved down to, in other words, it had its final arrangement, we'll call it, you know, the drums starting and, you know, like that. And then the band coming in and going through, and then there's a guitar solo, and then the last verse and chorus and whatever. And then it tails out. And I think that, you know, it had been going, and then it sort of broke down, and nobody knew how to stop or end the song. You know, the, that's why it seems like it slows down and sort of stops, and then it starts up again. And I think that that had probably happened on take eight. And then Bruce said, yeah, no, that's fine. Let's do it. You know, or, or maybe it didn't. I have wanted to uh, uh, get a copy of takes five, six, seven, and eight to see how it evolved. Because I know takes two, three, and four were quite different and interesting. And I do know that there was an extra take. I'm fairly certain it was take 10. You know, I suppose it could have been take eight. eight but I do know that we added, we edited the end of one take onto what was the master. Right. And we did cut it down because the guys just got going. And you have to understand, we were recording on analog tape at 30 IPS. You only get 15 minutes of recording on an analog tape at 30 IPS. <laughs> so we, we had to have started the take right away or at the point in time. And that's one of the things back in those days, you know, a good engineer has good judgment in that, you know, the band's recording and you you do a take and they go, wow, that was great. Let's do one more. Well, the engineer better be looking over at that tape machine <laughs> and seeing like, how much tape do we have left? Track two is Cover Me. Do you have any recollections of uh, recording this one? No, I like Cover Me. I believe it was a secondary song to one that he wrote for, let's see, who was it? Donna Summer. Donna Summer. He gave her a song. What was it? Protection. Protection yeah. Yeah. And uh, I remember it was either before we started working or after he went out to Los Angeles. And Bruce is an excellent band leader. Prime example of that that you, I'm sure, and everybody has seen is uh, Black and White Night with Roy Orbison. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, Bruce wasn't the leader of the band. I mean, in name. I forget, it was somebody else was the musical director and the leader of the band. But if you look at that Black and White Nights, the guy directing the band leading it is Bruce. You know, you see him turn around and do this and let, you know, count it. Uh, he's a great band leader. And he went out to Los Angeles and uh, sat in on the session. And I'm sure that he took over and uh, 
all the session players were following him and doing it and uh, did that. But Cover Me was that, you know, it was, it was a good dance song. There, There's, you know, songs are fun to record, whether they're a upbeat dance song like that or, you know, even a quiet song. Yeah. As an engineer, do you have a preference between like the up-tempo songs and the slow songs? Is one mm -hmm. easier to engineer than the other? Well, I would yes, I would say that perhaps in in the in the analog days, uh, up-tempo songs were easier uh, because, as I said, I don't record extremely hot. I I don't believe in the this idea of tape compression because I don't know how much it might be compressing and uh, how much that's going to affect the sound. And so I tend to try and record everything with a fair amount of headroom. And with a rock song that's rocking along, you know, it, it's loud. Whereas with a quiet song that's maybe mellow, everybody quiets down. And so if you've recorded a rock song and then they go, oh, here, I got another one. It's a quiet little ballad. Then you got to decide, well, do I push all the faders up and record it louder on the tape because everybody's playing softer? Or do I let it go as it is, in which case you might hear the noise? And so that's sort of a decision you have to make. And so I would say that in, in my, by my take, it's easier to record a, uh, a rockin' song rather than a quiet song. Because there again, I, uh, I like to let the musicians use and explore as much dynamics as they want. And if they want to go from cranking, you know, as loud as they can, down to very quiet, that's fine. But I don't want to set up for a, say, a quiet ballad, and then uh, somebody breaks into a loud bridge and all of a sudden whoa geez it's going up there and i'm getting distortion or something from it being too loud darlington county then so this is a, a big sounding record so is, is that in the recording or the mixing or is it a combination of the two well, it's a combination of the two you know it's uh, it's all you know bruce is into the uh, spontaneity of things and all these songs you know i used to um I created a database of Bruce's tapes years ago, back in 85, and kept track of everything. And if I looked at the database, I could tell you how many takes there were before the master take, which one is the master, and things like that. But as a general rule, uh, there weren't a lot of takes. You know, generally, uh, I think Dancing in the Dark was take six. And... Uh, it, we didn't really belabor it. And so Darlington County, it's a fairly simple song, straight ahead. That's just a matter of the performance. Bruce is into the performance, that it sounds spontaneous and uh, alive. And that's one of the songs that, that does. You know, that's, that's the thing. Every, every track has a kind of live, maybe the exception of Dancing in the Dark, but every track has a live they all sound like they're just live tracks. And obviously there must've been overdubs on most, if not all of the tracks, but it just sounds like there's a band together playing live in the studio. And it has that kind of spontaneity, like you're saying about it. Well, that's it. There was a band together playing live in the studio. 
And like I say, many instances, uh, it was all the players and all in one room too. Uh, I know when we, when we were at the power station, there was an ISO booth for Bruce. There was a booth for the piano and the keyboards. The guitars were in a, in a room of their own. And then, uh, the drums and bass were standing in a room, but, uh, I, I always liked the musicians to be together in yeah. the same room. And so I've always done it at the Hit Factory. We were in uh, Studio A1, and that was one big room with a little glass, uh, gla sliding glass doors, ISO booth at the one end. You know, Bruce would be in there, and the rest of the band was in that main room. And, uh, you know, we would put blankets and whatever over the piano and uh, electronic keyboards and organ. Well, that's simple to isolate. Uh, as I recollect at the Hit Factory, the, uh, the owner of the Hit Factory, Eddie Germano, always wanted to do anything that I wanted. And so the door, there was a little airlock between the control room. You stepped out of the control room, and then you went into this little room that was like, oh, maybe six feet it's sort of a weird shaped thing and then you went through a door into the studio or you went out into the hallway and the door into the studio was a solid door i said hey eddie eddie come on you know you got this airlock and it's all blocked off from everything else put a window in that sucker and i can use it as a iso room so the next day there was a window in that door <laughs> <laughs> I, I had to watch myself eddie was so accommodating to me that I had to watch myself because whatever I said, he did. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if you want other war stories, but I have other instances <laughs> of Eddie accommodating me uh, to just a fabulous extent. But um, yeah, so, you know, Darlington County was a cool song. I remember playing it that summer. I wasn't playing it. I think it was, I think it was, yeah, that summer of 84. Bruce went out on tour and he let me use a, his, uh, he had a Chevelle. It was, it was basically the, the sort of the prototype of, of racing in the streets. You know, it was a 69 Chevy with a 396 and all that bit. And uh, he let me use, use it. And I can remember driving down to the Jersey shore with that car one time and Darlington County was playing, and I was like, boy, this is it. I'm living the dream here. Yeah, <laughs> well, it's, a it's a perfect driving song, isn't it, really? Oh, yeah, it's yeah, great. Most of yeah. You know, I had the top down, and <laughs> I'm cruising along in this hot rod, and it's got glass pack mufflers, so it's louder than, louder than it should be. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> okay, so working on the highway. Working on the highway. Yeah. Not a lot to really talk about. That's sort of a working song. You know, uh, there again, probably not a lot of takes. Two or three, you know, maybe four or five takes. But um, these simple songs like Darlington County, Working on the Highway, and others like that. And Bruce tends to write uh, simple songs. The way that he makes them a little bit different is extending or reducing sections of the song that's 
the, the average listener doesn't un, doesn't realize it. And what I'm talking about is in the course of song structure uh, in the Western Hemisphere, we we tend to uh, think in terms of even numbered bars, like a four bar intro, an eight bar verse, an eight bar chorus or a 16 bar chorus or things like that. Well, most all modern successful songwriters write in that uh, parameter in that it's eight bars and eight bars or eight and 16. Well, what Bruce does though, which makes it quite interesting is he will have the opening verse be eight bars and then there'll be an eight bar chorus. And then the next verse might be nine bars. And he does this by the lyrics don't necessarily uh, end in the perfect rhyme scheme of perhaps a poem. And so when he's coming to the end of the verse, he maybe will have an, an additional line or three or four additional words to include. And so he just stays on the same chord for an additional bar. And you don't realize it because you're listening to the whole flow of the song and all of a sudden it, you know, it comes and then it turns around and bingo, then you're in the chorus. It's like, oh, and you don't notice it. But uh, it, it's, and unless it's one of those things in the song, it's fairly easy for the band to write them down. So that's, that's why the songs like Darlington County, Working on a Highway, you know, Born in the USA is a little bit more elaborate because of the structure of the song of starting out with just the drums and the band comes in and then it goes up and down. There's all, there's a lot of dynamics in that song. And then at the tail end of it, obviously, a lot of dynamics in the way that it goes and then it seems to stop and then it, uh, uh, you know, starts again. So uh, anyway, that's... Uh, that's my take on that song. Downbound Train is my favorite track on the album. Well, Downbound Train falls into the same sort of genre of Darlington County working on the highway and Downbound Train. Fairly simple songs, nothing too elaborate about them. Again, just talking about workers. You know, the whole album is sort of about people and what they're doing. You know, Darlington County, you're out there and then you're working on the highway and then Downbound Train, you know, a little bit, uh, what should I say, desperation or whatever of you know, not feeling great about the way things are going. But uh, yeah, yeah, I don't remember uh, a whole lot about it. You have to understand that although I was there uh, earlier this year, back in April, I think, yeah, it was, it was April, I was given the talk on Born in the USA. And I have a copy of the track sheet that I put up on the screen. Everybody looks at it and I go, well, geez, how about that? It was 40 <laughs> years ago today that I recorded this song. And they're like, and I go, I don't even know if any of you people were alive here four years ago. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you know, I'm thinking back and I, I did it. And then the other aspect to, for you to just keep in mind is that we recorded 65 songs over yeah, the course of this. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll uh, cut you a little leeway on that, actually. That is true. And, uh, you know, and the thing of it is, is that we did the first, I would say, dozen right away in probably two weeks at the power station. And then we went into, okay, let's turn this around. Let's do some overdubs. There's, 
you know, a few guitar parts and things like that. So probably three weeks or maybe four weeks at the most into the the recording, the initial recording of the album, we turned around and we moved from the, uh, what is it, Studio One or Studio A at the power station. We moved upstairs to uh, Studio C, which is the sort of the mix room. It's a smaller version of the main room at the power station, and it's got an SSL console, and that's kind of the mix room. And we moved up there and started mixing, and that's when Bruce said, well, let's work on this Nebraska thing. You know, and it wasn't Nebraska. It says, let's work on the cassette stuff, because it, it hadn't been given the name Nebraska until prior to being released. But, um, and, and you know, and then after that, we moved over to the Hit Factory. And at the Hit Factory, you know, that year of 83 to 84, we got into the grind of recording stuff. And it wasn't really a grind, but it was more like a routine of Bruce would come in and he would have a song in mind to record. And so he would come in with his notebook and he'd go, all right, boys, we're going to start out with this. And he would teach them the song. And there were breaks. It was very casual. I mean, sometimes he'd come in and everybody's be eating dinner, you know, or whatever. But uh, we'd get around to it. And by probably eight, nine o'clock, everybody's concentrating on, okay, this is the song, the song of the night we're going to record. And it would go through an evolution of take one, then take two. And then Bruce would say, well, maybe, uh, do, you know, Roy, you drop out of this part and you stay in and you take a solo here or I'll take one or whatever. And, uh, you know, and then, like I say, probably takes four or five or six, something like that. We've got it. And there may be pauses in between, like maybe between take two and three, Bruce will take five or 10 minutes or we'll come into the control room and listen one thing and another. But then it would get on to be like maybe 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock and we'd get that song. And then Bruce would go, okay, that's done. Now let's see here. And he would start thumbing through his notebook and you'd just hear the pages turning because he's out in his ISO booth. You hear the pages turning, then he'd go, oh, here's one. And then he'd, he'd come out and he'd address the band and he'd go, all right, guys, all right, let's try this one. And he would teach them another song. And that would occur and we might get two more songs later that evening so things happen fairly quickly you know like i say there was about 65 songs as i recollect okay so you basically you've got two and a half minutes to say everything there is to say about i'm on fire <laughs> so come on go Ooh, i'm on <laughs> no fire yeah i'm on fire uh, that was one where that was just basically bruce max I think Gary and Roy, fairly sparse. Was there ever a full band version of it, or was it always this arrangement? No, I think it was always just that arrangement. Uh, you know, and uh, Roy was sort of experimenting uh, at the at that point in time. The uh, uh, electronic keyboards had just sort of become, you know something that that was out there and available and i forget whether roy had a dx7 or an m1 or or an early early version i think it was of the uh dx7 and he uh was playing that and you hear in the background you know the the sound of the keyboard the sort of pad sort of thing and then there's 
I would call it maybe extraneous sounds in there. And it's just the sound that the patch of the synthesizer made, which, uh, you know, between just the guitar, that keyboard and bass and drums, and the drums are, you know, the very quiet brushes, sort of a train beat or whatever. Uh, not a lot to it, but uh, it's a good song. It's one of those songs that where you record it and probably a minimal, minimal number of takes, and then it ends and everybody just sort of goes, whoo, wow, that was, that was something, you know. And decide why. For over six years, my guests and I have been discussing the soundtracks to our lives. I'm Jesse Jackson, and I've had hundreds of fans from around the world share their stories about the power and magic of all kinds of music. If you enjoy stories about joy, redemption, trials, and ultimately triumph, then please check out Set Lusting Bruce, a Bruce Springsteen fan podcast. Remember, there is magic in the night. And I don't know if I'm supposed to be able to be hearing the record or not, but... Uh, Do you have it to hand that you can listen to? Who, me? Yes. No, I don't have a copy of it. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I, I have a copy at home. I mean, I'm sitting uh, in my studio. I've got a... I've got a platinum or gold record out on the wall but i don't think it'll play and i don't have a turntable oh those platinum records are they actual playable records if you took them out oh yes 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 you can play them oh yes yeah there was a i know there was a snafu years ago where uh, they put out a platinum record and i think it was it was supposed to be bruce and uh, it was actually Barbara Streisand or something oh, no. like that. that. Those are the occasional snafus that take place, uh, <laughs> you know. That's not that. right, is but, it? Uh, yeah, th- they are actual records. Side two. Three, two, one, play. No Surrender. Any particular memories of recording that song? Um, yeah, I think that we did that upstairs at the Hit Factory. That was in the second uh, sort of uh, go at the record. Uh, we had done a bunch of songs in '82, uh, and then take a took a hiatus uh, for the uh, Nebraska album, and then time off for uh, Chuck and me to do an album or two other than Bruce. Then uh, we went back in. I think it was uh, upstairs to Hit Factory that we did No Surrender, and uh, it was a good song. I liked it. You know, it was just about being a uh, young kid and playing in a band and having a good time. And uh, I seem, I recollect at the end of it, he had it uh, coming up where uh, it said the, the last two lines, something like uh, Blood Brothers in the Stormy Night with a vow to defend, yeah. no retreat, no surrender. And he just does, no, oh, no retreat, no surrender. And we got it done. I think one of the takes that seemed good, and I waited until he was okay with it. And I said, you know, you might consider repeating that line after that. So when you do no repeat or no retreat, no surrender, no retreat, no surrender. And uh, as I recollect, I think he did. So that was your idea. So every time you hear a song now, do you think that's my bit? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, uh, my my little claim to fame there. I actually you know, I, I've had a few, uh, you know, when he would do a song or something like that, especially the demos, he'd just go, I got a song. 
and he'd go through it and I, okay and then listening to the song i would give it a name and most of the time it was the right name and you know if i missed or something like that and then i'd go over and uh, look over his shoulder and see what he had written down for the name of the song and uh, do that but on this one it was just the little a little addendum at the end just repeat that last hook line did your working and, uh, title did he ever adopt that as the title of the song because he preferred your working title better yes on a couple of occasions i can't recollect which songs in particular uh okay. but uh, people don't realize how many hats i had working for bruce every time on every album when i submitted the lyrics to sony columbia or management or whoever i mean bruce and i went over them i would have lyrics and then i go hey we got to verify these and we would go through we would listen to the songs two and three times and he would change the lyrics on paper even though he had sung something differently just little tiny words like he or she or you know or whatever we had them correctly but no the uh, uh the wraparound in other words when you look at the lyrics on any song like uh, what's our next one bobby jean bobby jean yeah Okay, it goes, well, I came by your house the other day. Your mother said that you went away. She said, no, that I'm done. That wraparound from you went away to she said there was nothing that I could have done. Uh, on this one, I, I didn't do that. But that is what I mean about the wraparound. From Tunnel Love on, every lyric, that was what I said, this is where it needs to split and wrapped them around. Because Bruce writes continuously. In other words, he, he doesn't write it like prose or poetry with those wraparounds. He has a uh, college-ruled five-subject notebook that generally when he starts working on his next record, he uh, starts writing his songs in there. And he writes them out paragraphically. He just writes along until he comes to the end of the sheet of paper, and then he goes back to the next line and writes along until he comes to the next sheet of paper and does that. But um, yeah, I wrote all the lyrics and did all the credits. Bobby Jean, I'm not certain when we recorded that. According to the records, it says um, 10th of October 1983. Does that sound about right to you? Yes, that would be correct. I was just verifying because that was sort of a, um, a song for Steve Van Zandt. So people have said that. So is that definitely the fact did he actually write well it? i mean you got to talk to bruce to find the <laughs> term definitely the fact yeah but uh i do know that when we first started mixing i think in my route or something like that steve announced to bruce that i'm not going to be there you know i'm heading off on his own thing because uh geez that could have been back in 82 when he did that because you have to understand, we evolved into the Born in the USA record early in 82 by my mixing the Gary U.S. Bonds on the line album, which Bruce and Steve produced together. And then I started mixing Steve's album, uh, Men Without Women, in California, Clover, and Bruce wanted to start work on what became Born in the USA. And he said, I got an album and, you know, can you guys do your mixing back there? And so I went back, and during the day, I was working with Steve from generally noon to 6 p.m. at the Hit Factory. And then at, shortly after 6, Steve and I would walk a block and a half down the street or two blocks down the street to the power station, and we would start working with Bruce. And we worked on that. And when we finished it, then Steve's album was finished. That would have been 
May of 82, maybe May or June. And he wanted to do his own thing. And so he was putting together a band. And um, I can remember going out to Silver Cup Studios in, uh, where is that, Queens, I think, Queens, New York, and seeing the band. And he had put together a band and he was playing. You know, so, yeah, Steve, Steve said goodbye. And I think that this was, uh, Bobby Jean was sort of a, an ode to Steve Van Zandt. And was Bruce, when, when he said goodbye, how, what was Bruce's attitude? Was he quite accepting that? Yes, time for you to spread your wings, or was it a bit of... Yeah, it was It was a combination of understanding. Like, well, geez, you know, he wants to go do his own thing. You know, Bruce obviously knew that he was doing his own thing, because Bruce was around when I was mixing the first four songs of his record. Yeah. And then when we moved to New York, Bruce wasn't there, but he was just down the street, and he knew that... Steve would come to the sessions from having worked on his own record. So he, he was aware of it. And I think when, when Steve gave him the news, it was like, oh, wow. Okay. Well, uh, all right. And uh, anyway, I, I think that this one was, was to Steve because uh, I, it wasn't until, when was it? 84, when Bruce was putting together the band to go out on tour for Born in the USA, he was then like, I got to find a replacement guitar player. There was a guy that he thought that everybody thought that he would go with, who was a local New Jersey kid. And uh, he had played with Bruce on a number of occasions at the Stone Pony and around. But then Bruce uh, happened on uh, Nils Lofkin. So Nils filled in the slot there. So Van yeah. is listed as a co-producer. So when he left, did it change the dynamic in the studio between Bruce and the producers? No, no, not at all. Uh, Bruce's producers, which whether it's Steve Van Zandt, John Landau, Chuck Plotkin, or and subsequent to them, uh, Brendan O'Brien, and then Ron Aniello currently, they're more advisors or have been. Track nine, and I'm going down, which is like yes. three and a half minutes of like pop perfection to me. Yeah, it's, you know, it's a, it, it's a good song talking about a relationship. Bruce doesn't talk a lot about relationships. He will admit and i've heard him admit on many occasions he goes he doesn't write too many love songs and i can't really call this one a love song uh i think that if you look over the lyrics and mentally jump forward to tunnel of love there's a little bit of uh, overtones with uh, one step up two steps back brilliant disguise you know yeah. And uh, this one just, uh, you know, I'm looking at the lyrics here and you, the first verse, uh, I go to put my arm around you, give me a look like I'm way out of bounds, you know, and board size and I'm going down. He's just, this guy knows that this relationship is not working out and uh, he's talking about it. You know, it's, where's that in the, the bridge or second verse, whatever. I'm sick and tired of you setting me up setting me up just to knock and knock and knock me down. And, uh, you know, the we kiss, I can feel a doubt and so on. Just uh, like I say, fast forward to Tunnel of Love. And, uh, you know, Tunnel of Love was when he was married to his first wife. And man, from the outer appearance, everything was beautiful. And people would go, gee, you got a problem with the marriage? You go, no. You know, when they heard the, the songs on it, this is probably before it was released and everything. He goes, no, no, not at all. But, uh, you know, it's uh, the, the overtones are there. And uh, so that's it. It's just his song about a guy discovering that 
His relationship with his girlfriend is not working out. It kind of shows how, because the music is so joyous, but you saying that, you can imagine a slowed down, ballady, ton of love style version of this song, and it becomes a completely different song lyrically then, because yeah. it'd be more kind of in that yeah, spirit well, of one step up. And You know, that's one of the things about Bruce is that, like his concerts, the songs can all have a, what would I say, not, not a juxtaposition, but... A, 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 a scope up and down of a contrast. I'm going down. Sounds like fun. Mm. <laughs> he's talking about a ship going down. Mm. And, uh, you know, it's like working on the highway. Sounds like fun. We're out there working on the highway. I, I used to acquaint working in the studio people to go, wow, geez, nice job. And I go, oh, you bet. It's better than laying asphalt in Arizona in the summertime. You know, but working on the highway is, hey, boy, we're having fun. We're working on the highway in Darlington County the same way. Downbound train is a little bit more toned down for the uh, the attitude. And, you know, I'm on a downbound train like that. But uh, he tends to pick you up and then take you down. Pick you up and then take you down. You know, like no surrender. Let's get going and get out there and everything. And then Bobby Jean, he's saying goodbye to probably the same guy that he was in the bandwidth in No Surrender. Mm. And then I'm Going Down is about a guy whose relationship isn't working out, you know, and he's going down, he's going to be depressed. But then we're jumping to the next song, which is probably about now. Yeah, Glory Days. Uh, glory Days, which is, you know, talking about the glory days of, uh, you know, doing something. And and then the, the sort of the, uh, the positive is the girl that he meets in the second verse. He doesn't meet her. He just has this sort of a casual relationship with her and, you know, how he gets along with her. And then, the you know, then the chorus, glory days, they pass you by. I'll tell you, that's uh, that's something. I, I hope I'm never accused of glory days of, hey, back when you were working for Bruce, which is exactly what we're, yeah. exactly what we're doing right now. Uh, you know, but, uh, you know, it's the glory days of, there are some people that just don't forget about it. You and know? That, the so, point of the song is there's some people that peak too soon. So that the yeah. popular people at school are not necessarily the ones. And like Bruce, exactly, yeah. that. he wasn't the popular guy at school, but look at where he ended up. And that gives oh, I know. Well, no. well, he became popular when he started a band. Right, when he had yeah. the Castiles. He was still in high school. You know, so he was somewhat popular to a degree, but he wasn't the superstar of girls in the audience wanting to make friends with him. What's unique about Bruce? He's got a essentially two keyboard players in the in, in the band. You have got an organ player, and then you got the piano player who does synth right. synth as well. So in terms of arrangements, like take Glory Days as an example. In terms of how it's arranged, who plays what? They come with their own parts. Did Danny and yes. Roy their own parts? Yeah, and right. Now they they figure out their own parts. Bruce treats them the song, and he might indicate something to Roy or Danny. But these guys, by the time Born in the USA, that was eighty two they've been playing together over 10 years because the band got together in 72 and Bruce had been playing with Steve since she's 69, I think, or 70. And, uh, you know, Gary Talent and uh, Phantom, Danny Federici, were two of the guys that uh, used to go up and see him play at a place called the Upstage Club, I think, or something like that. They'd watch him play. And then Steve Van Zant came around and Finally, it was Gary, Danny, Steve Van Zant, And uh, then when uh, he got signed to the record label, 
he was signed as a solo artist, but the label said, well, no, we don't want you playing and singing a cappella. We, we want a band. And so he put together the band and uh, it was a Vinny Lopez was on drums. Oh, Dave Sanchez was on the other keyboard. So on, on Glory Days, the call and response thing at the end with Bruce and, and Van Zandt, was that spontaneous was that something they decided like, okay on this take you sing i'll sing with you together or did it just did it just happen? um no i think that um it, it was programmed chances are it wasn't programmed it it could have been i don't really remember to be perfectly uh, honest about it but uh, i do know that oftentimes on songs we would record a song like uh i think maybe the next one we'd recorded the song and then bruce would say okay I want to add something. I go, where do I need a spare track? And he go, no, 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 just at the beginning or something. Hungry Heart, I believe is one, where he would say, just put it in record and come out before the first verse. And then the song would play along and he, oh, hey, oh, do, you know, and he would just insert these little spontaneous sounds. And then he would also do that at the tail end of songs. Now, uh, Born in the USA and uh, that one, the entire vocal is live. Everything that he does on that, the, oh, hey, all right, you know, whatever, that's all live. That was one where he did it. Many times he would do that. He gets into the recording and he's, oh, hey, oh. you know, I think uh, on Glory Days, he might have said the stuff. But other than a talkback mic, I never really had a mic that was necessarily going to tape for Steve as far as a vocal. Because there was never a situation where okay, well, I sing the verse and then Steve and I sing the chorus together. And that wasn't the case. You know, he may come back and he may have Steve sing along with him or something like that, or nowadays it's Patty. But uh, yeah, no, the, it, I think that, that was, uh, it was inserted, inserted spontaneity. Inserted spontaneity, I like that. <laughs> okay, now Dancing in the Dark, which is um, track 11. It's quite rare to have the big hit single, like on track 11 of an album. Is that deliberate, you think, on your part, on his part, to like just kind of bury it a little bit and make a big thing of the fact this is it's kind of like an outlier hit single? I have no idea. I know that the sequence of the albums and all of those that I've worked on from Darkness on till, I don't know, four years ago or whatever it was, that is something critical. Bruce really thinks about that a lot. This one, the song was spurred by John Landau late in the game, I mean, we had been in mixing for probably two or three weeks. One day on the way home, John said, Bruce, you know, all your things are about this. You got to think about something that's here and now. We need a good hit single that's talking about you and here and now. The next day, he came up with this song. I remember John called me into the into his office. He said, Toby, Bruce wrote a new song. We got to record it. And so I got a hold of the Hit Factory and they made a room available, and uh, the next day the band was in there, and we did Dancing in the Dark. And then, as I recollect, we left the hit factory. Of, we might have recorded that afternoon or that evening, but it didn't take long. And then we all tromped right over to the power station to listen to the mix that Bob had been working on. We were starting work at uh, generally 7 o'clock at night, and we would go until two, maybe three in the morning. And, you know, it's it's not hard work, but for somebody who, Bruce Springsteen here, this is, it's on his shoulders. And, uh, and so he, you know, you look at the lyrics and uh, he was using them. I heard that uh, a similar thing perhaps took place with the Beatles on the song Help. It was something that John had written 
because he just felt beat. You know, help, I need somebody, help, you know. You can write songs that are about third-party people, like the I'm going down or the this, that, or the other thing. And then this one's a little bit closer to home in that uh, he's talking about himself and going through this. What the, the, the last verse, you know, stay on the streets of this town, New York City, probably. You got to stay hungry to keep your edge on. And I'm just about starving tonight. <laughs> you know, I'm dying for some action. He wants to get something going. I'm sit of sitting, sitting around here trying to write this book. That's, I'm fairly positive, is a direct reference to the album and this song. That's the genius of the song. It's, it's a hit record about not being able to write a hit record or not wanting to write a hit record. Of being yeah. forced. And, and by doing that, he's created this, the biggest hit of his career. Yeah, you know, and, and then you can't start a fire, crying over broken heart, this gun's for hire, we're dancing in the dark, you know, falling apart, we're dancing in the dark. We're just dancing in the dark. We can't really see each other, maybe, but we're still dancing. The first time you heard the song, would it have been in the studio with the band version, or would you have heard like a, a demo version or, or Bruce? No, Clark? there was no demo. There was no, no demo. He wrote written that was, night. Next morning came in and yeah, John band. told him write a song. Bruce went back to his apartment that night, wrote the song, went in the next morning or whenever he got up and played it for John. And John got a hold of me, I believe, later that afternoon, because I this is New York City, I mean, 10 blocks away, you know, and I came in and John goes, hey, Bruce has got a new song. It's really good. I'm going to get the band together. Can you get a place to record it like tomorrow or whatever? And we threw it together. And uh, the band came in. We did it. There was uh, there was some, uh, can't say carving, but uh, honing of the song. Uh, I remember there was an issue with the kick drum of on it max boom, you know, or whatever the kick drum pattern was. Like, oh well, maybe I should change it around. Maybe it should be boom, 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 boom you know, or whatever it turned out to be. But uh, we we tried to hone the the whole thing, and I believe it didn't take long. I'm recollecting Dancing in the Dark was like take six somewhere around there. Beautiful. The last one, beautifully understated way to end the album, My Hometown. Yeah, I forget. This one, I believe, was originally recorded by Mike Batlin at the home studio in Los Angeles that I had created for Bruce when we had completed Nebraska. And he said, I want to do some demos. I, I can't use the, the four-track cassette machine, can I? And I said, no, no, no. So I created a... a, a a little studio in the apartment above his garage in this little house that he owned. And uh, I think he might've done it there, but this one I'm fairly certain was recorded in February of 83 at the hit factory upstairs in their uh, upper room. It was sort of a bigger room from what we'd been using downstairs or what, you know, we'd used downstairs in A1. And, uh, you know, it was a very subdued song, you know, and uh, just talking about life in your hometown, which I think, you know, now looking back and you, <clears throat> you're having me reflect on these songs, it's sort of a good capper to the thing. Because we start out talking about born in the USA, you know, and wow, you're here. 
Or they'll say, you know, obviously, this is your home. And you could, I suppose, construe it as the USA is your hometown. Mm. And uh, you start looking at it, uh, 65 tensions at his high school, black and white, like that. And, you know, troubled times, they come to my hometown. Uh, You know, and then uh, you look at Main Street, whitewash windows and vacant stores. Um, Asbury Park, which is one of Bruce's main stomping grounds, was a very popular place at a point when Bruce was growing up and probably starting to become the the artist and person that we all know. And then there was some, I don't know whether it was political or whatever, there was some building stop that went in in uh, Asbury Park. And there was half a dozen buildings that were half built, stopped and abandoned. There was a time when Asbury Park was that verse, that third verse there, main streets, whitewashed windows or vacant stores. There ain't nobody come down here no more. It was that. I mean, some of us used to refer to Asbury Park as the Beirut of New Jersey. Wow. I mean, some of the buildings were just, it was nothing. No, you know, the, the, the downtown, the main street, you know, the highway went north-south through Asbury Park, but uh, there was a main street, I think it was Center Avenue, Center Street or something, which had a lot of business at it, you know, a big furniture store and other places like that. Nope. And then um, the, the the third line, they're closing down the textile mill across the railroad tracks. Um, that's probably referring to his hometown of Freehold, because there was a textile mill out there. And... Uh, you know, I, I don't know the entire history of the whole area, but I do know that Asbury Park was man, vacant stores and boarded up shops and like that. And, um, you know, just sort of echoing back in the last verse there to uh, last night, Kate and me were laying in bed talking about getting out. You know, where do you go? But, uh, you know, there in the, in the last line, he goes, yeah, but. Sit him up and told him to take a good look around. So, uh, you know, I think it's a, a good capper to the album. Hello, that is the end of Born in the USA. And do you know what point, at what stage in proceedings this became the last track? It was like cemented as this, the album's going to end on this. Oh, I don't know. It was hard enough coming up the songs to go on the album. You have to keep in mind that this album, I I was just looking at something the other day, and this was the biggest selling album of 1985. Now, it came out in 84, (laughs) but according to this chart, it was the biggest selling album of 1985. uh, Stayed on the charts for, God, I think it was like 84 weeks in the top 10. Seven singles that were in the top 10 off of this. Which is insane, isn't it? And the, yeah, there's only one, I think Michael Jackson or one others has done that with that many. Of course, nowadays they're they're cranking them out and everything's a hit. You do Um, wonder who buys the seventh single that hasn't already got the album. At what point are you still buying 
Surely by the seventh single, you got to realize, oh, yeah, there's seven good songs here. I'm, I'm going to buy the album. Now. Well, the, the reason they bought them back then is because every one of those singles, there was a B-side. That's true. Pink Cadillac was a B-side. I know. It's mad, isn't it? It's mad. You know, just look over the, the seven singles. You know, Born in the U.S. was one. Cover Me was one. Dancing in the Dark was one. I think uh, I'm on Fire was one. Bobby Jean was one. Maybe No Surrender. Yeah, I Glory Days. Glory Days down. was one. And there was a B-side for all of those. And the B-sides were really good. Bruce throws away songs that other artists would die for. I heard that uh, when Bruce was making The River, and now this is just rumor, when Bruce was making The River, Bon Jovi was in the studio working, and Bruce almost gave him Hungry Heart. <laughs> but John Landau said, no, that's a really good song. We don't give that away. And there's, there's been a couple other instances. Protection. Yeah, Donna Summer. Protection and Cover Me were two songs that he wrote for Donna Summer. Well, he gave her protection. He gave her a number one hit. As the night, Patty Smith. Yeah, yeah. You know, that one. Well, that one, he couldn't figure out how to finish it. And so she, I guess, filled in a lot of the, the end of the lyrics and things like that. Have I doubt when I'm alone? Love is a ring, the telephone. Love is an angel disguised as lust. Here in our bed until the morning comes. just likes to write songs and you know he did the biggest album of his career the river and then it turns out he follows it up with nebraska the man you know hungry heart this big hit and the mm -hmm. album made bruce nationwide famous here and probably over in europe as well and then he follows it up with nebraska it's like geez talk about shooting yourself in the foot <laughs> but that didn't stop it and then he made born in the usa and I think a, the wise move after Born in the USA was the live album, because that went from the first side or the first record was songs in clubs, nothing more than, I think, 350 seats. Then it went to arena shows. And then the third or the fourth one was stadiums. And he built it up. And then he went from that big, massive thing to Tunnel of Love, where the band barely makes it on it. Geez, I don't know how many albums I worked on with him, 18, 20 some odd albums. He just does what he wants to do. You know, he, he do songs and they vary, you know, from like that one I told you, Delivery Man, which is a cornball, hilarious song, to something as serious as I'm on Fire, you know, or uh, Pink Cadillac, you know, which uh, Pink Cadillac was a B-side. It was one of them. And he gave that to Bette Midler. Because when mm -hmm. we stopped working on Born in the USA in July of 82, Chuck and I went to California and started a Bette Midler record. 
Well, she was looking for songs and Chuck knew about Pink Cadillac and he asked Bruce, hey, can Bette cover this song? And he goes, yeah, but I want to approve what she does. And so um, Bette covered the song. The original Pink Cadillac was, I forget, it was either slower or faster than the one that we all know. And Bette did it at the tempo that you now know Pink Cadillac at. Bruce heard it and went, no, she can't do it. Bet wasn't any too happy about that. <laughs> what was he what was he objecting to? I forget. I don't know what. <laughs> maybe it was the speed, the tempo. Okay. Uh, you know, I would have to go back and hear because uh, I think Big Cadillac was uh, one of the cassette demos that went with Nebraska. But uh, you know, we had a, a demo of it and Bet changed it around and then he didn't like it. But then when he did it, I think he did it very similar to her verse. You know, okay. you never can tell. Was it ever going to be a double album? Was there any ever serious conversations about it? About a year ago, before we had this arranged this um, chat, I'd done my own version of a double album, a 21-track version of Born in the USA. And for oh. me, it's, it's better than The River. There's so many <laughs> fantastic songs. And even then, the 21 tracks I had, there's still a bunch of great tracks that, that didn't make it. Was there ever a serious conversation about actually making another double album? No. Nope. With all that material, all that great material, like songs like Frankie and Lion's Den, Pink Cadillac, Shut Out the Light, Wages of Sin, Cynthia. No. Nope. Great Murder Incorporated. These, these, these are hit singles. Forget about no, the, they They went on to find their light of day. My love will not let you down. That's it. That's a, a first single off an album, isn't it? That's a that's a killer track. Yeah. Well, you know, it's like Murder Incorporated. You know, there was a version of the album early on. What was it? Let's see. It was at the Fic Hit Factory. We were trying to put together a version of the album, and uh, Pink Cadillac was, I think, the kickoff to the second side, and a couple others, and uh, just a, I guess, a funny story. The Rolling Stones were working in another room, and this was at the Hit Factory. And Mick Jagger walks into our session. Now, Bruce wasn't there. Bruce had left for the evening, and I don't think John Lando was there. It was Chuck Plotkin, me, and the assistant. And Chuck was putting together, well, put this one in front of that one like that and trying to make a thing. And Mick Jagger walks in. He goes, whoa, boys, what are you doing? You know, And he's chatting it up and like that. And Chuck said, oh, well, we're trying to put this together like that. <laughs> I think Mick said something the nature of, you only need two hit songs on a record. The rest of it's just filler. That explains his solo career. Yeah. yeah. But uh, there were variations of this album over the course of time. That's why it took two years. You know, we started in April. I mean, there was a six-month break from uh, August, September, October, November, December, and then uh, January. So there was a seven-month break. And then we got together in February and did, I think, that My Hometown and there could have been another one in there. Uh, no, no Surrender, I think, was recorded about that same time. You know about Bruce Bass, don't you? 
Yeah, so so many good websites. There's one called East Street Shuffle. It's excellent. I've been using that as a guide as well. Apparently, so Cover Me was 25th of January, and then Dance in the Dark was started 14th of February, 1984, two years later. So it's over two years between the first track and the last yeah. track. It's incredible. It's incredible. It's such a cohesive album. You consider the long span over which it was recorded. Well, it was, uh, you know, there was a guy that was running the ship that knew what he was doing. Bruce. Do you think, do you think there'll ever be a box set for Born in the USA? Because there's been one for Darkness and Edge of Time. There's been one for The River. Do you think there will ever be a box set with all these 60-odd tracks? Because it's, it's coming up to what, well, the 40th anniversary well, soon, isn't it? Yeah. Let me put and it then- this way. I can't say anything, but one of the words in your phrase is in the works. One of the words. Born. No. USA. No. In. <laughs> no, in, in, in your sentence. How come? What, what do I say? Box set. Okay, so there is a box set, but it won't be for Born in the USA. No. Is it a live one? Uh, I, no. I, I've, I've heard rumors of a box set, but uh, it's not regarding any particular album. Okay. So it's all unreleased stuff. They're like a tracks two kind of thing. Yeah, I suppose so. Okay, that's exciting. Do you have a track that you wish had been on Born in the USA? Uh, no, not really. I don't, I don't, I don't think about those things. The, you know, what if, should have, could have, you know, nah. But this is how the fans spend their time. You realize that, don't you? That's how the fans oh, yeah. spend their Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Well, when was the last time you listened to the album in its entirety from start to finish? <laughs> Probably 1984. Really? No, I, I have no idea. I, I don't listen to material that I've done. So you, could you put it on and listen to it as a, a listening experience and enjoy it? Or is it just like you, you hear the work that's gone into it? Oh, no, I, I would enjoy it. The The time that I get the enjoyment and uh, whatever listening to a record is when we're done with it or it's just come out or about to come out and I have a copy and I can play it for someone. When you play it for someone, then all of a sudden you're put in a different position because you're hearing it sort of through their ears and not just yours. What I mean by that is when we're doing demos, it was just Bruce and I, and there was no one else around. And I'm recording away, and he'll put a part on, a guitar part or piano, bass or something like that. And every once in a while, he'll stop, and he'll go, what do you think about that part? And I'll go, what? And he'll go, what do you think about that, that part? And I'll go, oh, wow, I wasn't listening that way. I, I said, I'd have to listen to it again. Go, okay, so I have to back up the tape and then play it listening as a producer. Because when we're recording, I'm listening as a recording engineer. And I'm listening for, you know, is it loud enough on tape? Does this sound right? Is this good? That, you know, engineering sort of ears. And then when he says, what did you think of it? Then he's asking for an opinion on the part. Should it be faster, slower, this, that, and the other thing. So I have to go back and I have to listen. And I do. And I'll say, oh, well, you know, when you get to the chorus, rather than keeping playing the fours, maybe play eighth notes there. And sometimes he'll take it there. Oh, yeah, that could be an idea. And he'll go back and try it or whatever. That's why I'm saying when I listen to the record up until the time when it's done and mastered, and I'm listening under circumstance of critical listening. Once it's done and, you know, it's vinyl, it's a CD or whatever, and somebody says, hey, bring a copy of the record over. And I bring it over and I sit there and listen with them. Then I can hear it and go, oh, wow. 
ah, this is a good record because I'm listening as a listener, not right. as the engineer, not as the producer, not as anything else. I'm listening as a listener. But I, I don't do that too often. It isn't as though I get the album, then go home and put it on and listen to it five or ten times. I will probably listen when I play it for a friend or something like that. But that's it. I don't single it out. I mean, I, I, I've heard them all many times. You, you have to understand that when you're making a record, uh, especially of this caliber, but literally any caliber, any given song, you probably listen to it. Well, back in the analog days, because you had to go over the thing, make sure it was all correct and right. Um, you listen to the song probably close to 100 times, you know, and with digital, even more, because now with Pro Tools and stuff like that, you can do a guitar part. And the guy goes, oh, geez, I want to do another part. You can do it again. And so, you know, the guitar player can put five different guitar parts down there and then you either pick one that you like or you assemble one out of the three or four or five that uh, he put down. And so you tend to hear the song a lot of times. And then when you go in to mix it, in, in cases where you're the mixer in addition to the recording engineer, or uh, even if you're just the mixer, you don't hear it once or twice. Playing as a mixer, you're probably playing it, I would say, 30 to 50 times because you may be listening to different things. You know, you might play it down one time and you're just listening to the bass drum or you're just listening to the guitar. Most mixers that I know tend to listen to everything at once, but if they hear something, they go, oh, this is sort of, I want to scrutinize this, then they'll listen to just that track. Well, if it's a digital recording these days on Pro Tools, it's nothing to have 40, 50 tracks of information. Well, if the song's three minutes long and you decide you want to hear something, you know, listen to 40 tracks, and all of a sudden you've heard the song 40 times. So by the time you're done with it, you've heard it a lot. So once I do that, I'm sort of, I'm done. I'm moving on to the next record. So having said that, if you just, if a song from this album comes on the radio, do you turn it up, do you turn it off, or just ignore it? No, I just listen to it. It just goes on. It's another song. Really? You just see it as another song compared to the one before and after? You don't think, that's, I worked on that, that's, that's my work? Well, yeah. You know, it's always fun to hear your stuff on the radio. One, one of my songs that I've done where I recorded and mixed it, is uh, Tommy Two-Tone, 8675309 or whatever it is. That one, I love hearing that one. That's a song that is a classic of rock. Now, Born in the USA is too, and Dancing in the Dark, and some others. But that one, I have had people that I'll tell them, oh, yeah, I'm a recording engineer. Oh, what have you done? I go, Bruce Springsteen. Oh, wow, that's cool. Anything else? And I'll go, well, 8675309. Really? Wow, that's cool. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, geez, you're comparing a guy that basically was a one-hit wonder to somebody who's had hundreds of hits or hundreds of songs. When you look at the albums that Bruce has put out, the last time I checked, he's released well over 200 songs, probably closer to 400. Yeah, we are, I would say closer to four, 500, yeah. You know, you know, and they're all good songs. I mean, that's it. What was your biggest professional disappointment about either the 80s or about Born in the USA? My biggest disappointment was uh, the Tunnel of Love record, which I thought was one of a sterling job of engineering 
and recording and songwriting was released three days after the cutoff for the Grammys. Oh, it, whose decision was that? Then? I don't know, but it was it was released like October second or third of nineteen eighty seven, and the Grammy cutoff was September thirtieth, which meant that it wasn't eligible to be proposed for a Grammy until 1988 or 89 actually and I thought wow this record is really good and I've had many people that say that is my favorite record it's a very clear record you know there isn't a lot of uh, you know Bruce when he plays on Born in the USA and you hear his guitar coming along it's what we used to call the primal scrub because Bruce just sort of cranks up and down, you know, like that. There wasn't a lot of that on Tunnel of Love. It was a little bit more open album, not quite as raucous as uh, some of them. But that was one, because I thought, well, geez, have I ever had a shot to get a Grammy <laughs> for engineering? That yeah, might be it. That's a real you know. shame, because a beautiful but, sounding record. is. Yeah. Be- yeah. But, uh, yeah, yeah that, that was probably the only one. The rest of them, uh, I'm pleased with, Everything I've done, when I talk out at colleges or universities, I tell kids, be sure and be happy with anything you let leave the studio, because you never can tell. I did the Bob Dylan Shot of Love record was all rough mixes at the end of the day. (laughs) And let's see, what was the other one? Ghost of Tom Joad, all rough mixes. The end of the day, we finished recording the song. And we was, hey, let's do a rough of that. We'd do a rough mix, put it down. When it came time to reproduce it and do a better mix, nope. He liked the rough. I, I can so, imagine with Bob Dylan, he doesn't have time, you know, much patience for lots of mixes. But I'm surprised with Bruce with that. He would have been happy with just the first mix. But Bruce on, on that was, uh, it was like Nebraska. There was a certain atmosphere and sound to it that he liked. Mm. Best single professional moment of the 80s. Single professional moment of the 80s? Yes. The one moment that speaks to mind that I, I could relive that moment again in the 80s because that was like the pinnacle. Recording Born in the USA. Well, the actual song, you mean? Yes, the song. Yeah. yeah. Because I had created this reverb. I don't know whether I told you the story or you heard it. I was new to the power station, big studios, multi-room studios. I had worked in a bunch of them before. But this is one where I knew I was going to be living in there for a while. And uh, so I came in. I said, well, what's the reverb situation? They go, well, we've got two live chambers, the stairway and the ladies' room. And uh, the ladies' room was basically a short thing, you know, snare drum in there or whatever. Uh, the long one was a, geez, three, four, five-second stairway that they had stuff in. And otherwise, they had four EMT-140s, which is a, a plate reverb. I'll just leave it at that. And I said, okay, I want a reverb unit that I can stay the same and I can use it all the time. They go, well, all the 140s, they're open for people to use during the day. You can book the same one every night, but that isn't to say that someone hasn't come in during the day and adjusted the decay time of that unit. And I, okay, well, I wanted one that I could keep the decay time because I wanted it set to a certain sound. And they said, well, we've got another one. It's not an EMT-140. It's some Swedish thing. And it's broken. The decay handle broke. And it's at full decay. So this is like five seconds worth of 
reverberation going on. It's just blah, 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 you know, on and on and on. And they go, nobody wants to use it because it's broken and it's only this long. Okay. I said, I'll take it. So that was my snare drum reverb. And coming out of that unit, I put it into a Keypex, which a Keypex is a gate. It was an early gate back in the, uh, I think it was invented in the 70s and 80s. And then finally other people invented gates. And then I said, I really want to keep this sound. So in case I go to another studio, I still have it. So I recorded it on tape. And then with other reverbs and like that, created that Born in the OSA, boom, boom, you know, this big sound, which a couple of people have told me I invented the gated reverb sound, but I, <laughs> I didn't think of it quite that way. But anyway, but that sound and then the instruments and everything, I can remember quite vividly when they did a take, when they cranked into you know, the final one, two, or three takes of Born in the USA, listening to it, and me turning to Plotkin and Landauer next to them, I go, I don't know what he had planned on sounding like, but this sounds pretty good to me. And they were all like, yes, this sounds huge, which Bruce likes to sound huge. And then when he came in and heard it, he was pleased with that. And that's probably something that I had created that sound so that, as I said earlier, when it came to mixing, I was kept around to advise Bob on any tricks or techniques that I had used to make it so that it sounded in that big sound that all the rough mixes had. Because that's what I was going to oh. say, because people, I think, associate that big drum sound with the Bob Clear Mountain mix. But what you're saying is that was already there before he mixed it. You created yes. that drum sound in yes. the studio, effectively. Yes, that was it. And uh, yeah, because when I play this back, because I have a copy of this take nine, the final take, I put it on and I play it back and everybody listens to it and they go, wow, that sounds like what we all know and love. And I have the reverb that Chris Lord Alge added to it for the dance mix version is printed on tape as well. He erased my original uh, reverb. He printed his own on there. Those are turned off and muted. And that's three tracks. But you're listening to the full 21 tracks of the song as recorded. One thing that comes to mind just for you and your listeners, years after this, when we did, uh, there was a Murder Incorporated video. Mm -hmm. We were putting stuff together. I think it was for Bruce Springsteen uh, Essentials or Greatest Hits. I think it was Greatest Hits. And they wanted to add extra songs. And we found uh, Murder Incorporated. Well, I was coordinating this whole thing. And I had Bob was mixing in one room at the Hit Factory. And then we were preparing to do something in another room. I had like three rooms going and I was bouncing between them. One of the rooms I happened to be walking by it. And the there was like two or three assistants and other engineers in there. And they were going, wow, geez. You know, and they were exclaiming. And I went in, I went, what's wrong? They go, listen to this. And they put on Murder Incorporated and it it still had all the reverb and all that on it that I put on. And they go, it sounds incredible. It sounds like it was recorded yesterday. And this was, geez, I don't know, probably 10 years later or something like that. 
And the, the, all the assistants, they were pretty impressed <laughs> at the recording. Record. It really is made in cold break. I actually love that one. The Eternal Jukebox. Um, so I think called the Eternal Jukebox, which is all music gets wiped forever, be able to keep three songs. So if you could only keep three songs for eternity from Born in the USA, which three would you keep? Ooh, uh, Dancing in the Dark, I'm on Fire, and uh, maybe Born in the USA. Can't argue with those choices. And your three words to describe Born in the USA to you? I can only think of two. <laughs> big record. Big record. Big, big record? Okay, big, big record. Okay, excellent. I'm always determined to get the three words. That's excellent. Okay. Okay, yeah, I was going to say highlight, you know, highlight, because it was, sort of, it was sort of a highlight of my career, but uh, I think big record was it. Uh, you know, we had no idea. Uh, the record company really planned on this being a big deal, and they promoted the hell out of it. But when it came out, you know, I mean, like I told you earlier, 84 weeks in the top 10. Jeez. That is the end of the interview. So many thanks to Toby for the interview. Really great chatting to him. And I won't be able to listen to Bruce now without hearing those primal scrubs. Isn't that a great phrase? (sighs) Primal scrubs. Uh, Also very excited about the idea of a tracks too. That you, You have to do a Born in the USA box set at some point surely and it's the 40th anniversary of Born in the USA next year so it'd be mad not to wouldn't it it'd be the perfect opportunity come on Bruce come on Brucey baby think about it and I mentioned in the interview my, my double album edit I'm sure many of you have your own here's mine 21 tracks Toby and Co clearly got it right because all 12 tracks from Born in the USA are on it there you go so we've got side one we've got Born in the USA cover me working on a highway then Darlington County and you end on shut out the light side two Disc one side two. My love will not let you down. Cynthia, downbound train, Frankie, I'm on fire. Uh, side three, or disc two, side one. No surrender, Bobby Jean, Wages of Sin, Pink Cadillac, Lion's Den, and Janie, don't you lose heart. No, 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 no. And side four, or disc two, side two. Murder Incorporated, Dancing in the Dark, I'm going down, Glory Days, my hometown. What an album that would be. So give it a try and see what you think. And think of the tracks that don't make it. You've got no stand on it, no Rockaway the Days, no Johnny Bye Bye, This Hardland, County Fair, None But The Brave, Blood Brothers, so many great tracks. Anyway, what else? Oh, so if you'd like to support the podcast, I'll, I'll willingly take take uh, any any PayPal donations via atisography at gmail.com. I know, I know, I get on the PayPal train when everyone's getting off it. Which is typical of my, my timing. But, but think of it, you're rewarding supporting the podcast not rewarding them so the value of donations i seek are so small that their their percentage is, is minimal anyway, any help is appreciated thanks and thanks again for listening i wanted to close out with a cover of one of the many songs that didn't make 
the final album. And I was this close. I'm currently holding my thumb and finger about three millimeters apart, maybe four millimeters actually. This close to using the, the version of My Love Will Not Let You Down from the film Ricky and the Flash, sung by Mel Streep. But I decided in the end to keep an E Street connection with the guy who took over from Stephen Van Zandt as the guitarist on the Born in the USA tour, Nils Lofgren, singing yet another song that didn't make the final 12. Uh, this is very nice. So until next time, um, I think I'll, I'll end with a few words from the boss himself. Goodbye and keep the faith. That's your job. That's what you're paid for. Put something on. Somebody says, hey, I'm not alone. Put something on it, it about hey, the way people treat one another. That alchemy or whatever you want to call it, I think, is what you're paid for. And you can do it on stage at night. doesn't necessarily be done literally. It can be done just through an explosion of energy at a particular moment in a particular way that makes someone want to stand up, move themselves, do any go go home and and do whatever they feel they need to do you know and and you try to make you just try to bring forth experience you know and and get people in touch with all of those things in their world that's the real job that's the job that keeps you writing that's what keeps you want to write that next song because you can do that and because if i do it for you i'm doing it for me Here comes a fireman, here comes a cop Here comes a wrench, here comes a car hop It's been going on forever, it ain't never gonna stop Everybody wants to be the man at the top Everybody wants to be the man at the top Everybody wants to be the man at the top Blame your gun, son, and shoot your shot Everybody wants to be the man at the top Rich man, poor man, beggar man, thief Doctor, lawyer, Indian chief One thing in common, they all got Everybody wants to be the man at the top Everybody wants to be the man at the top Everybody wants to be the man at the top now Blame your gun, son, and shoot your shot Everybody wants to be the man at the top Singing all right top says it's lonely up there well if it is man i don't care from the big white house to the parking lot everybody wants to be the man at the top here comes a banker here comes a businessman here comes a kid with a guitar in his hand Dreaming of his record in the number one spot Everybody wants to be the man at the top 
Everybody wants to be the man at the top Everybody wants to be the man at the top now Blame your gun, son, and shoot your shot Everybody wants to be the man at the top Uh, Bruce's producers, which whether it's Steve Van Zandt, John Lando, Chuck Plotkin, or and subsequent to them, uh, Brendan O'Brien, and then Ron Aniello currently, they're more advisors or have been. Brendan O'Brien did change songs and say, hey, you know, you have these lyrics here, we, can we cut these out and do that and the other thing? But as far as shaping the songs and creating them in a new and different manner, that didn't really happen. Brendan basically used a template of my demos to record them, to record all the songs. He worked on three albums, I think, three, maybe four. Can't really say he did much on, what was it, Devils and Dust, but he did uh, three others, The Rising, and then uh, Working on a Dream, and one other song, can't remember. But uh, And then uh, Ron Aniello has been working with Bruce since 2011. And uh, basically, you do what Bruce wants, and your production or your contribution to the production is uh, in through suggested overdubs or things like this, and you contribute to Bruce's idea. You don't change it much. That's about the size of it. So if you he contribute. does a duff vocal, are you able to say, Bruce, that was out of tune, that was terrible, or it? Even if you think a song's really bad, would you say, I don't think this one should go on the album, or would it be just sugar-coated by saying, this song's really good, let's work on this one kind of thing? Uh, yeah, no, uh, that doesn't happen because the songs get done one at a time. Uh, from Tongue of Love on, it was Bruce and I, and we would do a song, maybe a song a day, and it doesn't take long, he zips right through them. Then after he's done all the songs that he wants to record, which can be... Tunnel of Love was the fewest. I think we only recorded about 15 songs for Tunnel of Love, of which I think 12 were used. Once we get the songs, then Bruce has John Landau, who is his mentor and what's the Italian tune, consigliari or something like that. <laughs> and Bruce pulls out what he's calling his album. And we may have recorded, uh, you know, 40 songs but he presents, say, 12 of them to John, and John listens and uh, says, oh, great, it sounds good, and like that, and is there anything else? And I forget which which album it was, uh, Ron Aniello's first album that he worked with us on in 2011. I, f I forget even what it is. Well, I've got to make it look right. This was at the end of 2010, like November, December, and John came in, listened to the song, said, oh, that's great. Is there anything else? And me having knowledge of all 40 songs, you know, Bruce would go, well, yeah, I got a few others. So I go, well, anything I should hear? Bruce, well, you know, sort of indifferent to it. And I'd say, well, what about this one? You know, a song that I liked and something like that. And uh, oh, yeah, yeah, we can play that for him. Well, play it for him. You know, and I had rough mixes of everything. So I'd play it for John and Finally, I, you know, between me sort of going, well, what about that one? I mean, you know, it adds up. And then uh, John was like, hey, well, geez, you know, Bruce, uh, listen to the extra songs that you didn't have as part of your album. Maybe we should 
rethink this and uh, you know why don't we why don't think of maybe this one and not that one and this that and the other and Bruce oh well gee I hadn't thought of that and so uh, you know that was something that takes place and uh, and when we when we went through that uh, the demos that I make with Bruce or that I had made with Tunnel of Love anyway well and all the ones through Brendan O'Brien the demos were really good Brendan O'Brien basically just had the band members replay everything, you know. And uh, but when uh, we did this, he played him back with stuff for uh, what became on Wrecking Ball. Uh, John Landau said, "Geez, you know they're pretty good, but they could use some refining. Uh, you know, some of the guitar parts are a little, you know, not quite perfect, and the piano and this, that, and the other thing. And it was all my finger tap virtual drums on everything." And so they they asked and said, geez, who can we get? And as I recollect, Bruce had left the room and John was going, Toby, who do you know that can produce this? And I suggested Ron Aniello. And he goes, who? You know, he didn't know who Ron was. I knew Ron because I had produced Ron's first record like 20 years earlier. But anyway, uh, he goes, who? And, and I told him. And then I guess it was a month later, John called me up and said, do you have a number for Ron? I said, yeah. So I called him up and, uh, geez, I think it was three weeks later, John goes, hey, your friend Ron is coming in. Give him every accommodation. And we started working in January of 80, where was that? January of 2011. The, the extended version has got 13 tracks. So those other 27 yeah. songs, were they retooled for later albums or is there still a load of unreleased songs from those sessions? Oh, they're still unreleased from those sessions. Yeah, it's like you could, you could do a box set for pretty much every album, but a ton of love, it seems uh yeah oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> i mean uh, i i know that in the course of time of me having parted company with them and not working out i still keep in touch with ron about what's going on what are you doing and he tells me and uh, all i can say is there's plenty to come yeah i'm pet <laughs> okay let's move on that's to all scratch. i can say yeah okay it's, it's um intriguing. because when uh when bruce and i got into recording geez for I think it was Ghost of Tom Joe, Devils and Dust, all of those, uh, The Wrecking Ball. I've recorded probably two, three, or four series of what we call demos, which was just Bruce and I, him playing everything except the drums, and I play the drums, uh, groups of 40 songs apiece. Oh my God. So there could be like 20, 80, 160 songs out there. Wow. That Many of them have been created into albums, like Devils and Dust came from that. The Wrecking Ball came from that. We recorded a lot of stuff, just he and I. And uh, then when Ron joined joined the group, Ron was very good, and he learned how we did it and like that. And then Ron was able to contribute. We learned more from a three-minute record, baby than we ever learned in school. Tonight I hear the neighborhood drummer sound. I can oh, yeah. feel my heart begin to pound. Yeah. And you're and say you're tired try tired <laughs> and you tired, and you tired. just want That's to close true. your eyes and follow, follow your, your dreams, dreams down. down. Well we made a promise, we swore we'd always remember. No, no retreat, retreat baby, baby. No, no surrender. surrender. Like soldiers in the winter's night. With a vow to defend, no, no retreat, retreat, baby, no, no surrender. surrender. 
Well now young faces grow sad and old And hearts of fire grow cold We saw blood brothers against the wind Now I'm ready to grow young again And hear your sister's voice calling us home Across the open yards Well maybe we could cut some place of our own With these drums and these guitars Cause we made no promise. We no, swore we made we a would... promise, not no promise. Our <laughs> point made no promise. Because we made the whole song is about making a promise. Because right? we made a promise, we'd swore we'd remember. No retreat, Treat, no, baby, no, no surrender. surrender. Blood brothers in the stormy night with a vow to defend. No, no retreat, retreat, baby, baby no, no surrender. surrender. Hey, la 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 la